Last week we talked about the doctrine of salvation, what we're saved from, what that means for our life, so forth. Today as we continue our journey through the various doctrines, we come to what salvation uh, is for, what it is moving us toward, and what gave us that salvation. The two are intertwined with the same reality. It's called the resurrection. And when we say the resurrection, most of us, our minds immediately go to the resurrection of Jesus, and that is obviously uh, the heart of what we're going to talk about today in many ways. But when the, the New Testament writers talked about the resurrection, more often than not, they had in mind the future resurrection, our resurrection. And it is a doctrine that has... Um, it, it suffered in our culture, um, in the Christian culture as a whole, um, to, to, to other notions, to other ideas, notions that are somehow, some way, in our thinking and our way of assessing things, um, more palatable, more um, comforting, perhaps. Um, we have become a culture again, and I mean by Christian culture here, that really focuses on heaven. But heaven isn't the emphasis of the New Testament hope. It's not the emphasis of, of uh, Scripture and where it's all headed. Heaven, as we've talked about before, um, in terms of our relationship with death, is um, a temporary residence. The reality of Scripture is that our eternal residence is the new heaven, new earth that God will create when the resurrection occurs. That's the biblical model. Uh, that's the biblical ideal. That's where you get the streets of gold. That's where you get the, uh, uh, the, 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 the new Jerusalem, with the tree of life in the midst of it, and so forth. That's our future. And you may think that that's just, again, drawing lines that don't necessarily need to be drawn. But what has happened in the failure to draw those lines, in the failure to distinguish between heaven, which is the intermittent period, if you will, and the new heaven, new earth, and resurrection, is that we've lost a lot of the power, a lot of the emphasis, a lot of the uh, impact of what the New Testament writers are trying to communicate with the doctrine of the resurrection. So today as we look at this passage, I hope to, to highlight some things that uh, grow out of this doctrine that are significant to us, that are significant for why we hold to the belief that we hold to and, and why Scripture teaches this truth about the resurrection. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The church at Corinth, as we've talked about before, is a, is a church that was troubled, a church that um, was very much influenced by its culture. Uh, Corinth, as a city, was a city that was, even by Roman standards, considered corrupt and loose and, and just out of hand. Um, it was an insult in their day to be called a Corinthian. 
um, because that meant that you were a person of extremely loose morals who had no perspective, no way of dealing with life um, that was appropriate, even in the even in the minds of the pagan Rogan, Romans. And one of the things that they struggled with there in Corinth was the idea of resurrection. They had fully bought into the Platonic um, philosophy that said the material world, the, the physical realities of life don't matter. All that matter is the spiritual, the ideal, the form that's out there. It's what Plato taught. and Corinth had fully bought into that. And so when it came time to talk about Christianity, when it came time to talk about the resurrection, many in that church rejected the doctrine. They came to a position, they came to a belief that basically said, no, when we die, we become spiritual beings, and that's all that we'll ever be. And so part of what Paul is trying to do in his letter to Corinth is to correct that misconception, to correct that, that wrong belief. And 1 Corinthians 15 is where he does that most thoroughly in his writings. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Now I, make, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one born in the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that you bring. We thank you for the truth that you bring to our lives. God, we, we ask your forgiveness for those times where we have lessened or dismissed or ignored doctrines that you view as essential expressions of who you are. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today and help us to better understand the truth of all that's involved with your son's coming, with his death, and with his resurrection. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So the first thing I want to point out about the resurrection that Paul illustrates here, that Paul expresses here, is that the resurrection is the gospel. It is the good news. It is the heart of the message that we should be proclaiming. Too often we, we deal with salvation from the lens of escaping hell or maybe just going to heaven or something along those lines. But Paul here highlights and emphasizes that the resurrection, that is our expected restoration, our expected rising from the dead, our expected life with Christ in eternity is the heart of the gospel. He says here that it is the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. In other words, when you came to Christ, when you turned away from that old life, when you turned away from that, uh, that 
reality that was so destructive and so that would lead to hell and would lead to to uh, nothing but hurt and pain. When you did that, you turned toward the truth of the resurrection, and you need to stand on that doctrine, on that truth, on that reality, because it's that truth that's going to get you through the, the difficulties of life. It's that truth that is going to be your ultimate destination. It's that truth that is uh, the, the very formation of the good news as opposed to the bad news that we dwell in apart from the resurrection. He then goes on to, to tell us uh, several truths about Jesus' resurrection. Before he gets to the doctrine of our resurrection, he wants to, he wants to plant the seeds. He wants to express the truth of Jesus' resurrection and what it means to us. And the first thing he tells us is that Jesus really died. In verse 3, he highlights this truth that, that Jesus really died for our sins in our place. We talked about that last week, that how God accomplished justification, how he brought us to a place of standing before God was through the resurrection the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. The second thing is that Jesus was buried. He highlights this in the first part of verse 4. And, and in, in this particular case, um, he, he wants us to understand that the, the note of finality, okay, um, that Jesus was buried, we, we think, well, yeah, that just kind of immediately follows on death. You die and then you're buried. But in the Jewish system, in the in the Jewish expression, it, it, it carries both a note of finality, that he really is dead, but it also carries with it obedience to the law. Even in Jesus' death, he was obedient to what God had laid out, to what God had done. That, that there's no point in Jesus' journey anywhere that he wandered away from obedience to the Father and what the Father had expressed as significant. Third, Jesus experienced resurrection. Now, as Paul says this in the second half of verse 4, he changes verb tenses. Okay, In Greek, um, one of the one of the things that I always try and point out to, to students when uh, I'm trying to teach Hebrew and they're all like, this is so hard. I'm like, it doesn't have nearly the verb tenses that Greek has. Greek has a bajillion verb tenses. It's crazy. They were insane people. I'm just saying. Okay. And here, Paul changes the verb tenses from the other verbs that he's been using. And he moves to what's called the, the perfect tense in Greek. And, and what that means is that it happened and it continues to happen. Okay? In Greek, you can talk about something happening and then stopping and not happening ever again. But in this particular case, Paul says it happened and it continues to be a reality. It continues into the present time and will continue on into the future indefinitely. He wants the Corinthians, he wants us to understand that the resurrection 
is something that cannot be reversed. It's something that cannot um, go, go to a, a status either in our minds or in reality of not having happened. It's significant. It's important. And it continues to have ramifications. The fourth thing he tells us is that there is good evidence for the resurrection. In verses 5 through 8, he talks about what? All the people who saw Jesus dead. And it's important for us to, to, to understand the, the connection of this truth to the faith that we have. The belief in the resurrection, my belief in the resurrection of Jesus, your belief in the resurrection of Jesus is not a blind leap of faith. Well, I just have to believe it because that's just what I'm supposed to do. There is good reason. There is good evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, said, Faith certainly tells us what the senses do not, but not contrary to uh, of what they see. It is above, not against them. Our faith is not opposed to history. Our faith is not opposed to facts. Our faith is not opposed to the truths of reality. Jesus had six post-resurrection appearances recorded for us in Scripture. There were certainly more, but six of them are recorded for us. And, and, and that tells us, that communicates to us what? That this is an important factor. That it wasn't just this ghost or this apparition or this vision or this hallucination that the apostles experienced. They saw him in different contexts doing different things that a person would do. Eating, talking, being able to be touched. They all experienced him in this environment, in this situation. Now, why does the Bible give us so much information, so much evidence on this issue? Because it's so important. It's central to who we are. That's why over time and throughout history, no doctrine of the church has been more attacked, more uh, attempted to explain a different way than the resurrection of Jesus. There's been all sorts of theories. There's been theories that, that uh, try and talk away or explain away his death. One of the most common out there is the swoon theory. This theory says that Jesus never really died. He just passed out on the, on the cross. And that when they took him down, he was in this, this passed out status. And then they moved him to the tomb. And when they moved him to the tomb, the cold, damp air of the tomb uh, shook his senses. And he woke up. He said, oh, look, I'm awake. And then he walks out of the tomb. Attempt number one. Others have tried to give alternate explanations for the body. You have one theory out there that says that uh, it's a stolen. It was stolen by the disciples. That, yeah, he died. He was placed in the tomb. But the disciples came. They opened up the tomb. They broke in. They stole the body. They went and hid it someplace else, buried it someplace else. This is actually the oldest explanation. This is the one that we even find in Scripture with uh, the leaders of 
uh, the Jews trying to pay off the, uh, the soldiers. Uh, another explanation that's been offered is that they went to the wrong tomb. They got up that Sunday morning. We got to go take care of Jesus. They get to the tomb. The tomb's empty. Whoa, Jesus is risen from the grave. But he's actually two doors down in a different tomb. It's the theory that's been put out there. Others have tried to talk about the resurrection as something less than a physical bodily resurrection. That uh, it was just a vision. That all of these disciples, had to, they were on something or they were because of stress or something like that, had this vision of Jesus appearing to them, but he never really did. Others take a, a more legendary theory that the disciples needed some explanation, some reality to uh, defend their existence, to warrant the, the presence of the church and the money-making reality that it was, so they developed this legend, perhaps even perpetrating a hoax altogether. Others have taken what's called the telegram theory, that as it's passed on from generation to generation or person to person, that it expanded and it changed and it transformed from what it originally was. And I could go on and on with all sorts of theories that people have put forward but the Bible is, is very careful. History is very careful to, to, to give us clear, reliable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You have, first of all, the precautions that were taken. Scripture tells us that three major precautions were taken to ensure that Jesus stayed where he was put. The first was the Roman guard. Not the Jewish guard, the, the, the temple guard, the, not, not the individuals who uh, were easily convinced of different things, the Roman guard. And anybody who's ever done any study about the Roman military and the Roman soldiers know that these guys took their jobs seriously. For the simple reason that to fail in your task was to be punished harshly, even sometimes to the point of death. And so the Roman guard were put there. They were not going to fall asleep. They were not going to be overwhelmed. They were not going to be taken by, especially by a bunch of fishermen from Galilee, um, in terms of the body. Secondly was the Roman seal. Scripture tells us that Pilate had a Roman seal put on the stone. Now, we may think that's not a big deal, but again, to, to break a Roman seal, to be the person who said, Snap was to make a very big political statement that would uh, immediately have resulted in death. And then third was the large stone. The text tells us it took several men to move that stone. And, and when it was moved, it would, it would have fallen into a, a crevice that would have made it even harder to get out. So you have the precautions taken. Then, secondly, piece of evidence that we have is the fact that it's women that tell us that it happened. Now, why is that evidence? That's evidence because women were not considered trustworthy 
witnesses, in, especially in Jewish culture. They were not allowed to testify in a court of law. Their, their opinions, their view, their facts didn't matter. So if you are a biblical writer and you're making up a hoax, you're trying to convince people of this untruth that Jesus had risen from the grave. The last person or people that you're going to choose as your primary witnesses are women. You're just not going to choose them. And yet, that's why they did, that's what they reported. Why? Because that's what happened. That's what happened. Then you have the multiple witnesses. Paul says here, what? 500 people saw him at one time, many of whom are, just, are still alive. He says, he's saying what to the Corinthians? You want to ask some people? There's, over, there's close to 500 people out there right now that you can go talk to about this. The hostile witnesses. Had Jesus' resurrection not occurred, Surely, the Jewish authorities, who were so afraid of the situation and circumstance, would have produced a body and said, See, here it is. Stop with this foolishness. And then lastly, the church itself. The disciples, the 12 plus the women and others who were there, were what? At the death of Jesus, they were frightened. They were terrified. They were very much concerned with the reality that they would be next. And yet something changed. Something switched from a group of people hiding in an upper room, terrified of what would happen next, afraid to open the door, having people covertly go open the door, answer the door when... Um, opportunities present, to suddenly standing in the middle of the temple, preaching, proclaiming, going to their graves, some being beheaded, some being stoned. What changed? It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a hoax. It wasn't a legend. It was a reality of Jesus standing and the power that that provided. There is good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But what does all this mean? What, why does all this matter? Paul continues on in the next part of his letter here to argue that the doctrine of the resurrection matters. It matters for the world to come. And he builds this case off some truths in verses 14 through 19 about why the resurrection impacts our faith. He says in verse 14 that if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, our preaching is worthless. He says, furthermore, that if our preaching is worthless, our faith is also worthless. Then in verse 15, he says, the apostles are false witnesses worthy of death. 17, he says, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we're all still in our sins. 
Then in verse 18, he says, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then those who have died are just dead. There's no hope. There's no future. There's no purpose. There's no spiritual reality out there. If Jesus didn't rise, there's nothing beyond death. And that all culminates in verse 19 with the with his statement that if this is the case, then Christians are most to be pitied. Why? Because Christians were suffering persecution throughout Asia Minor, throughout Greece, throughout Rome. Christians, wherever they appeared, were being persecuted. What a shameful, stupid way to live if Jesus is not risen from the grave. But he goes on in verse 20 and following to say that since Christ has risen from the dead, we can expect to rise again. Verse 20 through 22. But as it is, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made Paul makes it very clear here that the resurrection of Jesus is not just about the resurrection of Jesus. It's also about our future resurrection. That that is our hope. We can expect that. We can expect that event in the future. And again, let me be clear here because this is something that is often misunderstood. He's not talking about waking up in heaven. That's not the resurrection. That's the intermittent period. The resurrection is a physical, bodily raising from the dead. This body will one day die, and this body will one day be brought back to life by God's power. That's the doctrine of the resurrection. So those who are, and I've heard preachers say this all the time, that that person there in the in the in the in the casket. I'll get out here in a minute. That's not them. Yes, it is them. And they will, that body that's there in that casket will be raised from the grave. That is a biblical doctrinal truth that we have dis diminished or dismissed. Paul goes on to say in verse 23 that we can expect to rise again in a manner similar to Jesus' resurrection. What do we know about Jesus' resurrection? We know that the tomb is empty. Therefore, it's not just a spiritual reality. His body came back. We know that the scars were still evident from his death. We know that he still ate. He spoke. He was touchable. Now, some would say, well, why didn't the disciples, especially on the road to Emmaus, recognize him? If, he's the, if it's the same body, if it's the same Jesus brought back to life, why didn't they recognize him? Well, the simple answer to that is they weren't expecting him. They weren't expecting to see him. I think I've shared before that one time I was traveling from college back home on a Sunday, and I decided that since it was about the time for the evening service, I would stop at my brother's church just to enjoy 
you know, fellowship and be able to worship with him and say, hey, to my brother, it's on the way home uh, to my parents' house. And so I did. I stopped at the church, got out, went inside, sat down about four rows back. Okay, so I'm not back in the back. I'm, I'm about where the Bradleys are, okay, in, in the service. And I'm sitting there, and we're singing. And then my brother gets up, and he starts preaching. And he looks right at me five, six, seven times as he's preaching a sermon. Then just a little bit over halfway through his sermon, he stops and he goes, that's my brother. I'm like, hey. He goes, I didn't even see you there. He looked at me over and over again for a good 15, 20 minutes. He looked right at me. Did not recognize me. Did not see me. Why? Because I wasn't supposed to be there. He had no idea I was stopping. He had no idea I would be there. So I was a person in his congregation at that moment. That's all I was. And for those disciples walking to Emmaus, this man comes up beside him, starts talking, walking with them, all those other things. He's just a guy. He's just traveling the same road we're traveling. They get to where they're going. They sit down. The text says when he broke the bread, they were like, dude, you're Jesus. And I'm sure they said dude, too. Okay? You're Jesus. It was that moment that it triggered. His body was different in some ways than the physical reality. It had capabilities that it didn't have before. It could get into locked rooms. Obviously, it could ascend to heaven. Paul goes on to call our bodies um, in the post-resurrection the spiritual bodies, which is in and of itself an oxymoron. So there will be some differences, but there will be enough similarities that there is a continuity. It is this body that's brought back. So we can expect to rise again. We can expect to rise again in a manner similar to Jesus' resurrection. We can expect to witness the consummation of Christ's kingdom and the end to evil and death itself. When the resurrection takes place. Paul outlines that for us in verses 24 through 28. That God will put everything under, the Father will put everything under the feet of the Son. And that he will rule. This is why our minds are, and actions are drawn to the hereafter. This is why we think so much about what's going to happen. Because it is so extraordinary. We wonder what happened to our loved ones who loved Jesus and who went, who have passed. We wonder what's going to happen. What happens in the in-between time? What happens between now and the resurrection? 
There's different offerings that have been offered by Christians over the years. Some have argued for soul sleep. Some have argued for an intermediate body, kind of a holding body of our spirit or soul during that time. Some have argued for a disembodied experience, not, not ghost, but just an experience outside of the body in God's presence, conscience fixed, but incomplete. Some have argued for soul death, that when the body dies, the soul does too, and that God will resurrect them both. Some have argued for two realms, that when you step into death, when you experience that, you enter into a different realm, timeline, time situation. So that for you, the resurrection, the moment you die, the resurrection has already happened, while those who are left behind are waiting within history. There's all sorts of views that have been held, all sorts of arguments, but all of them agree on three essential truths. That by the return of Christ, everyone's body will be resurrected in a manner similar to Christ's resurrection. Number two, that there's an important connection between this body and the hope to come. And number three, that resurrection is to reward or punishment. You will either, in after the resurrection, you'll be rewarded or you'll be punished. That is the heart of Christian doctrine. While we may disagree, again, on the details, the truth is that we can expect that. And all of that comes to the point of realizing that the resurrection doesn't just matter for the world to come, it matters for the world right now, too. We come to realize that what happens in this life affects what happens in the next, is the first truth. What you do, the decisions you make, the commitments you make, now will affect them. N.T. Wright said, the point of the resurrection is that the present body of life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it all behind, they are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom now. This body matters. Paul says in verses 25 through 41, that who you are and what you do matters now because of the resurrection. The, res the work of salvation in its fullest sense is about whole beings, not merely souls. It's about the present, not simply the future, and it's about what God does through us, not merely what God does in or for us. That that is what salvation is grows directly out of the reality that there is a future, there is a resurrection, there is a hope. It also tells us that the degeneration that we see now in the world, the falling apart of systems, the falling apart of people, the, the cruelty that mankind has for other men is not the final state. 
We don't have to fear, Paul tells us in verses 50 through 56. We have a future that is different. A future that is different because of the resurrection. And then we have power to live our lives because of the resurrection. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, the resurrection was not a last-minute act designed to rescue the hero from some unexpected course of events that got out of, got out of God's control. It was his plan. It was his purpose. It was his power. But we continue to live in a fallen world. We continue to live in an environment characterized by death and loss. But the joyful news that God has raised Christ from the dead, it doesn't change the present world we live in in and of itself. We still have to a lot of work. We still have to discipline ourselves. We still have to sacrifice. But the fact of Easter gives us the spiritual power to do the work, to accept the discipline, and to make the sacrifice. What Christ accomplished in raising from the dead changes everything for you, for me, for how we live in the world, for what we pursue in this world, and for what we hope to happen one day. That is the truth of the resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. I thank you especially for the gift of life that we have because of the resurrection. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts and minds today to help us to see the implications of the resurrection for how we live, for what we do, for what we pursue, for what we hope for. God, I pray that you would bless each person here. I pray that if there's anyone here who's not living in the power of the resurrection, who's never responded to your gift of life, that you would draw them in this moment and they would respond in faith. Lord, help us to to be the people you've made us to live the lives you've called us to. It's in Christ's name we pray.